We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. It, it's always a weird thing for me whenever I start these things because I don't want to have the, the repetitive introduction every single time of, you know, welcome listeners, whether you're a first time or whatnot. It's always an, an interesting thing as I'm, as I'm listening to that um, beginning introduction that I have to every one of my uh, podcasts that previously recorded thing uh, that kind of gives you information about it. I'm always thinking of like, what am I going to say to like introduce everything? And um, so, you know, it's always an awkward thing for me, but it is what it is. We are going to be finishing up, Lord willing, Luke 22 today, and we're going to go through it. And if you've listened to the last two, you will have known that this has kind of been a long time coming. Um, it's been about two or three weeks, I think, in the making. I sat down about two or three weeks ago just to go over this, but God just kind of gave me a, a, a new, fresh weight of what this whole interaction meant between him and Peter, between him and the cross, um, and just everything that took place during this time. And it's taken me a while to kind of feel like I've gotten to a place where God said move forward in this. And so there's a lot of things. I'm actually kind of nervous about this one. I don't typically get nervous about doing podcasts. Um, but this one I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about for some reason. I just I don't want to mess it up. And there's a lot of topics in here that I know can be controversial, which is never shy. I've never shied away from that before. But there's a lot of stuff in this one that... As you stay with me throughout this, I think there's going to be quite a few revelatory things that you're going to grasp from this. And I'm hoping and praying that it changes your perspective into something that is more in line with truth if it is not already. And so as we get into this, we're going to start in verse 31. And we're going to start off with one that, um, like I talked about, it's a controversial type point in which, at least in the church in America, we have this tendency to want to be comfortable, to want to be safe, to always want to have security. I mean, we put up fences, we put up locks on our doors, we put up security systems, and we'll pay outrageous amounts of money to stay comfortable and safe today. And in some way, we've made that an idol. And understand what I mean by that whenever I get into this passage. I'm just going to start reading it and then I'll go back and talk and hopefully that'll make more sense. Jesus says in verse 31, we, uh, we finished on verse 30 of part one when the batteries ran out of my recorder. Um, and so this one, we're starting in 31 part two of Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Now, this is a passage I think that we oftentimes we look at, we know, we've, we've talked about it so many times, whether it even be in Sunday school or whether it be, you know, in church or in whatever it might be. Growing up, we've become accustomed to this passage that, yes, Jesus denied, or uh, Peter denied Jesus. Yes, the rooster crowed and three times Jesus foretold of that. But I want us to really look at this with kind of a fresh lens. And there's a couple of things I want to point out in this. One, before I even get into any of this, remember, this is still Peter being under the old covenant. He had not yet, Jesus had not yet died and resurrected. Therefore, he had not been able to send the Holy Spirit to them. And he had not been able to strengthen them through that Holy Spirit. As John twenty twenty two says, whenever after he was glorified, he was... Um, Resurrected, he had not yet ascended, but he was glorified because he talked about it in John where he says that once I'm glorified, I can send the helper. And so in John 20, 22, he says, 
He breathed on them and said, receive the promised Holy Spirit. So in that moment, there was this marking, this identification, because Christ could now send the Holy Spirit. And so he marks them, he identifies them as his, because the death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the old covenant. The new covenant has now been established in the blood of Christ. He's conquered death, and he was able to give them that sealing of the Holy Spirit. The sphagizo, as the Greek word says. It's the marking, okay? Fast forward that to Acts chapter 2. He gives them the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get into that topic, but I, will want, I do want you to go look at those two verses and see the distinction. He breathed on them, Lombano, when he says receive, he says receive the promised Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1.8, he says that you will, Lombano, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so there's this distinction that goes on right there. But I want you to understand something. The new covenant has not yet been established. So Peter did not have the strength yet to fully overcome the temptation of Satan's bombardment against him. And that is a key distinction to make in this. Here's one of the other ones. The, there are different words in the Greek for you okay, that are translated. You have plural forms of that and you have singular forms of that. The King James does a very good job of keeping it plural or singular by using terms like thee and thou and thy those are all terms that are using to keep the plurality or the singularity of who he's referencing. And I want you to understand something real quick. I'm going to read this with the understanding of what's plural and singular. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all. All right, that's, that's a good old East Texas slang, southern country type thing. If you don't know what y'all is, that's you all. And that's what we just say is y'all. All right, it's plural. It's meaning several people. He says, Satan demanded to have y'all, plural form of the word you, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Satan didn't just demand to have Peter. Satan was demanding to have the apostles. And he was looking for somebody who is going to stand up and who is going to actually be a source of strength for the other people to be a leader. All right? Peter failed. But once Christ came into him and he came into Christ and the Holy Spirit now was available to him, you're going to see how Peter led. You're going to see how the apostles led. And this is an important thing to understand is that Satan is not just looking to go after one person. Say he's looking to go after everybody. He wants everybody. But God needs leaders to stand up and to say, I will not let him tear me down. I will not let him prowl around me and roar and intimidate me in any way, shape, or form. I will stand my ground and I will sit in the grace that God has given to me through Jesus Christ. And I will walk out this life in victory and in power. I want you to understand something. Here's the third thing I'm going to draw out from this one. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me or until you deny three times that you know me. Remember, this was prior to the new covenant being established. That is in a paramount foundational truth that you must grasp. The gospel accounts are an old covenant teaching. Okay, there are some things in there that Jesus is pointing forward to. To be established in the new covenant. But much of what he talks about. And the examples that he gives. And all these things that are going on. Are under the old covenant still. Because he had not yet died. And Hebrews 9 says the new covenant was not established. Until the death of the one who instituted happens. But here's what I want you to catch. Jesus didn't pray that Satan wouldn't sift them. Jesus didn't pray for comfort and security for his apostles. Jesus didn't look at them and say, Hey, you know what, guys? I'm going to pray for you that Satan would not be able to sift you. No. He says, Satan demanded to have you, and I'm going to let him have you. I'm going to let him sift you. Because I know that his sifting is my refining to those who endure through it. Did you hear what I said? Jesus did not pray for comfort and security or safety for his apostles. He let Satan have his way to a point. 
But he prayed that their strength would endure through it. And praise God that in this new covenant we have a source of strength through Christ and the spirit that is made to dwell in us that we can overcome that. Peter shows us the example of what happens whenever you're trying to do it in your own flesh. We'll get into that in just a little bit. The point is, guys, is that we, we have an idol today of comfort and safety. In fact, when somebody's going on a long trip, what do, at least in my circle, and what I've always observed, some, somebody's going on a long trip, we always say, God, give them traveling mercies. God, keep them safe. And while that's not necessarily a wrong prayer to pray in and of itself, I think that it shows we have the wrong perspective because what if God didn't, doesn't want to keep us safe? What if he wants Satan to be able to sift us because he has a refining point in which he's going to say, I need to refine you a little bit more to be like me. Or I, through that I'm going to give you an opportunity for the name of Jesus to be upheld. Case in point, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and his four buddies, they went to go to the Indians that were in some indigenous area. They witnessed to them. Um, they spent two weeks with them and then they get slaughtered. These people were cannibals. They were known to be violent. Nobody had ever really approached them and lived to tell about it. And so now Jim Elliott and his four friends, they lost their lives after spending two weeks with them thinking that they were making strides. And one day they come in with the spears and they destroy and slaughter every one of them. Well, then their wives come behind them. And they preached to them the same message of Jesus Christ that these five men had preached. And these guys say, wait, wait, wait. We've heard this before. We're going to listen to you. We're not going to kill you. We're going to listen to you. And they ended up getting saved. All because five men were willing to live outside of a comfort and outside of safety. And move forward at the risk of their own lives. And the culmination of that risk. Of giving that so that others could come behind them. And preach the gospel. My point is this. Is if we're praying simply for the comfort and security. And safety. I think we're, we have a skewed perspective of our mission. I think we're living more like civilians rather than soldiers. As 2 Timothy 2 says. So I want you to kind of think about those things real quick. As we move forward in some of this. And I know some of that can be heavy. You know, when I go through these podcasts, I, I don't really hold back. I'm not the softest guy. I'm not the guy that's going to bring the cup of cool water and just have you sip from that and then kind of hit you on the head a little bit with a hammer every so often. I'm the guy that holds the hammer. That's how God has molded me. That is not who I used to be. I still don't like confrontation. I still don't like, you know, to have people hate me. That's, that's not an agenda that I have. And I... I you know, growing up, I hated it when people hated me. I wanted to be liked by everybody. I was a people pleaser. But God has molded me through truth and through His Spirit to be a person who's willing to say the hard truths that nobody else is willing to say or that few seem to be willing to say. And as a result, there's many people who don't like me. And so I realize that these things can be heavy, but just understand, they're truth. And truth is meant to be heavy. And I know a lot of people would, would probably use that verse in Matthew 11, come to me all you weary and heavy, um, heavy laden, burdened, you know, all this very stuff. And he says, for my burden is light. Well, let me just tell you what Jesus is talking about there. That word for laden is a Greek word that means burdened with ceremonial rites and passages. Okay, Jesus is not referencing the woes of this world and the things that you've got going on, all your anxious thoughts and all your sins and all your struggles and that backpack that you're trying to put on of sin. That's not what he's referencing there. He's referencing the distinction between coming to God through the law of Moses and coming to God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's referencing there. And that's why he says his burden is light because it's not a required 613 commands that you have to keep before you get to come to the throne of God. As the high priest, if he had any sin in his life whatsoever, he would have to go in there once a year for the unintentional sins of the people and offer sacrifice for them or incense for them. And if he had any sin whatsoever, he would be struck down dead just like that as he entered into the Holy of Holies. You want to come into God's presence through the law you better make sure that you got your stuff in order. 
You want to come to God's presence through Jesus Christ. Yes, we need to make sure that we've got stuff in order, but that's not the main requirement. That's what Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 is referencing. Truth should be a heavy burden to us. I think Paul took truth very seriously. I think Jesus took truth very seriously. In fact, that's why he even says in James 5, 19 through 20, if anyone among you wanders from the way of truth... He says, if you bring his, a sinner back from his wandering, you save his soul from death. Truth is a major, major weight to our soul. And if it's not to yours, if you don't have a, a desire for truth, then let me just tell you, you're missing something. Because there's a lot of reward and beauty that comes from having zeal for truth. As it talks about with Jesus, even zeal for his house consumes me because his foes forget to do what God commands. Lot, his righteous soul, was burdened as he lived in Psalm of Gomorrah where it says that his righteous soul was um, afflicted. I forget the word that it uses, but essentially in torment, basically. Because he looked around and he saw people not doing and giving honor to God and living in truth. My point is this, guys. The things that I'm going to say, they're probably going to be heavy. They're probably going to be weighty, but it is an instruction in truth. That's what we should live by. Because as uh, was it First Timothy three fifteen, I believe is what it says. It says this is how one ought to behave in the household of God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. That means that um, do, um, stulos, and I forget what the other word is that's used there. But it means that you are to be a firm support and immovable from truth. If you're part of the household of God, that should be you. He goes on, he says this. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? So he says, earlier on in the ministry, when I would send you out, in the rare times that I sent you out by yourself, without me, two by two, I sent you out and I said, don't take your knapsack, don't take a money bag, don't take an extra tunic, don't take an extra pair of sandals. He says, you had to learn to rely on me. It's the first step of ministry. You've got to learn how to rely on me and not yourself or even other people. He says, did you lack anything when you had bare necessities? Here's their answer. They said nothing. We didn't lack. You provided everything that we needed along the way. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors. What does that mean? We'll get into that in just a little bit. Now, I'm not going to camp out on this one too long. What I will say this. It says basically what he's telling them is, I didn't want you to use worldly resources that were at your disposal at that time because I wanted you to learn to trust in me. Now, now I'm telling you because my hour has drawn near and now my time has come. Now I'm going to tell you, I want you to use those earthly resources for my mission. You got a money bag? Take it and use it for my mission. You got a knapsack? Put whatever you need in that sucker and go out there and start doing my mission. He says, I want you to use those earthly resources for heaven's mission. Anything you got. This goes into Luke 15, what we talked about in the parable of the dishonest manager. Everything is to be used for his glory. And he goes on and he throws this little wrinkle in there in 37, right after he says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now I've often heard this verse in light of people trying to justify the notion of self-defense. Well, Jesus tells us to sell our cloak and get a sword because he knows people are coming after us and we're going to have to be able to defend ourselves. Can I just tell you, that's idiotic. That is a foolish way of thinking because it is not upheld in the cross one bit. Our example is Jesus Christ. When did he ever, ever use a sword to defend himself? The only thing he ever did was take a whip of cords and it never says he struck anybody. What it does say is that he used it to drive out people out of the house of God because they were making it a den of thieves. He did it to defend the honor of God. But Jesus never took a life. He gave his life. And he did it willingly. I talked about the difference between pacifism and self-defense in a previous podcast. I've actually done it several times. Uh, not self-defense. Pacifism and being non-resistant. 
And I talked about those two distinctions between those. Let me just tell you, if you think that this verse is telling you that you need to have a sword for self-defense or a gun for self-defense, let me just tell you, that's a very foolish thing. Because it does not go in accordance with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who while we were the sinners, while we were the ones who put him on that cross. Yes, I'm totally aware of the distinction that God put him there. But you know what? If we didn't sin, God wouldn't have had to put him there. We put him there. In conjunction with God's plan. But while we were sinners, in the time in which we were sinning against Jesus. Our sin put him up there. He died for us. He gave his life in place of a sinner. So let me just tell you, how in the world can you justify a person who is claiming to be in Christ, living by the example of Christ and under the gospel of Christ, and yet somebody sins against you and you want to take their life instead of give your life for them? Let me just tell you, you can't. It is irreconcilable. So for you to look at this and take one fragment of a scripture out of its context, as I'm about to show you what that context really is, and use it to justify an unbiblical belief that's contrary to the gospel, that's foolish and ignorant. And I'm just telling you how it is. Sorry if somebody's lied to you in the past and told you that was justifiable. It's not. He goes on, he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressions. That's taken back into Isaiah 53, in which he says it um, in verse 12, when he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that an amazing thought? He was numbered with the transgressors and he makes intercession for the transgressors. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for the saints. That's the gospel. The beauty of it. That while I was a sinner, he gave his life for me. A a sinless man who was unjustifiably murdered. And he did it for me. And he did it for you. So how in the world then can we justify the notion of self-defense? Because I will tell you it is irreconcilable with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have bought into that lie, it's time to not buy into it anymore. He goes on, he says, For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. It was enough to fulfill Isaiah 53, verse 12, in just a little bit. Jesus isn't talking about that we need to go and sell our cloak and buy a sword so that we can defend ourselves from the incoming attack. Because we're about to learn that if that's your take, you, you are missing the point of what takes place in about ten verses. Because he would have just contradicted that. Instead, a cloak is something which clothes you. It's something which covers you. It's something which allows you to, um, to not be in shame. Um, sorry, I'm trying to flip to something real quick. So I'm doing two things at once. And as I've gotten older, that is not as easy as it used to be. But a cloak is something that covers you. It's something that, that uh, allows you to not be in shame. To where you're not being exposed, right? And the sword is something that when you understand it in the spiritual light of what Jesus is saying, he knows they're not going to understand the, the, the spiritual side of this. Just as it was with Nicodemus when he says, hey, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, am I to crawl up in my mother's womb? And he's like, you don't get it. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. You need to be born of the spirit. And 1 Corinthians 2 talks about where he says the natural person doesn't understand the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. So this concept of a sword that Jesus is actually alluding to is that which is going to cover you. I want you to invest in that. I want you to make sure that that is going to be what you live by and what defends you. And as Ephesians 6 says, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's not talking about a physical sword here. He's only talking about the physical in as much as it fulfills the Word that was written about Him. That is it. 
But once this new covenant starts, it's no longer a physical sword. It's the spiritual one, the word of God. That is what will defend us. Proverbs 23, 23 says this. Buy truth. Remember what he says? Take your cloak, sell your cloak, and buy a sword. Here's what he says. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Where do we get all three of those things? Wisdom, instruction, and understanding? Through the word of God. And he says that is what you need to invest in. He goes on. He says, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Meaning, not that temptation would not come upon you as we know it's going to come upon every single person. Every person on this earth who has existed, is existing or will exist, will face temptation. What he's asking them is, pray that you would not enter into giving into that temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, which is how we have this message. We know because it was only a stone's throw that he was praying loud enough to where the Peter, James, and John, who as he left some of the disciples, he took Peter, James, and John, he went a little further with them. And then he had them stay there and say the same thing, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he went a stone's throw away from them. And he was praying loud enough to where we have an actual eyewitness account of what Jesus was praying in the garden. And he says this, He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And he began in an agony. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So at some point, the disciples, in hearing Jesus pray these three different distinct times, at some point they fall asleep. Jesus, well, we have the account of Matthew, prayed the same thing all three times. And in an hour each time, which is why I think we don't have an account of it, because at some point the disciples fell asleep. We only have the account of what we know simply because they were awake at that time. And isn't this an amazing thing that Jesus himself is saying, God, I'm struggling. So much so that the anxiety that's coming upon me of what I know I'm about to have to suffer is so great that I'm sweating great drops of blood. And he was in agony. And an angel came to strengthen him. And he didn't give up in that moment when the angel came to strengthen him. He pressed harder into prayer. Let me ask you, is that your model? I can tell you it's it's not mine. I get discouraged very easily. And I'm I'm just going to be totally upfront with you. Don't think that, that, you know, because I'm saying this, that my prayer life is rock solid. And man, whenever temptations and trials come against me, I am more earnest in my prayer. I wish that was true. And there's been times in my walk with Christ that it has been true, but I'm going to tell you, I get discouraged very easily. I get disappointed very easily when things don't go the way that I intend or thought that they might go. And my MO is to actually pull back from prayer. But look at what our example is in Christ. He's praying and he is in agony. It's a Greek word, agonia. It means to struggle or to be in anguish. And an angel comes to strengthen him, not to give him relief from the anguish, but to give him encouragement and what was needed for him to press into it even farther. Man, don't miss that. This is our pattern in prayer. Temptations are sure to come. Woe to the one by whom they come. Temptations are going to come. Trials in life will come. And when they come, not if, but when they come, our pattern shows us that we are to press all the more into prayer. That we are to be more earnest in our prayer. Dig into more of an anguish in our prayer. Pour out our heart more to God. This was our pattern because it was Jesus' pattern. 
And man, I, I wish I had more time to talk at length on some of these things, but we do have still about 30 or 40 verses I want to get, get into on this one. But just understand, that is a deep, deep thing to say that Jesus was praying, not my will, but your will be done. That means that there was two different wills at work here. Jesus had his will and God had his. There's a lot of depth to that. That you need to probably try to get into the word and unpack a little bit more. So here's the thing I want you guys to try to find. Because what he's say? Why are you sleeping in verse 46? Rise and pray that you may not enter in temptation. Or as I said, that you would not give into temptation. He says essentially, I don't want you to be lulled to sleep by the devil's lullabies. And there's a lot of people, I think, that we get lulled to sleep by those lullabies that he plays of the things of this world. And we fall asleep, which is why over and over and over again you find in Scripture it talks about staying awake. Luke 12.35 said that very thing. Keep your garments on. Stay awake. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. Stay awake. Even Ephesians 5, and Paul writes to the church in, in Ephesus, he says, I want you to wake up. Christ will shine on you. Wake up. Stop sleeping. Awake from your dr- drunken stupors, he says in 1 Corinthians. This concept of staying awake and not being lulled to sleep by the devil's lullabies. Man, it's sweet music and it's distracting music to keep you from wanting to stay awake. It actually engages you in wanting to go to sleep, of taking it easy, of just resting. Let me just tell you, God doesn't want us resting physically. And here's what I mean by that. Are you saying like he doesn't want us to sleep? No, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I think God does want us to rest in him. I'm talking about the distinction between physical resting and spiritual resting. God does not want us to spiritually rest. He doesn't want us to fall asleep. He wants us to stay awake at all times. Do you know that even in your dream life, there's, there's attacks that are going on that God says, I need to train you of how to stay awake spiritually, even in your dreams when you're resting physically. You might have not ever thought about that. But I believe that God wants to give us authority even in our dream life to take thoughts captive, even in our dream life. This is what he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered in his temptation. I once was talking to a guy who said he didn't believe that Jesus could sin. I disagree. And I disagree because scripture disagrees with that notion. Let me just tell you, if Jesus couldn't have sinned, if it was impossible for him to have sinned, impossible, there's no chance for it, no chance whatsoever that he could have sinned, then how is he tempted? Because by the very definition of what temptation is, it's the choice between good and evil. The choice to do what's right and the choice to do what's wrong. Both of them were made available to him. So if it was impossible for him to sin, then he couldn't have been tempted. And yet it says very specifically that not only was he tempted, but he suffered in his temptation. And Jesus is giving us the pattern of what can be accomplished through the Holy Spirit in our temptations. As opposed to what is accomplished in the flesh in our temptations. The disciples in their flesh, absent of the Holy Spirit, fell asleep. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, stayed awake. And Jesus, by extension, has given us the example and the pattern to say, rise and pray that you may not give in to temptation through the Holy Spirit. It's the premise of what Romans 7, 18 and 25 is about. In Romans 7, 18, it says that in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells in me. I cannot achieve the Christ-like image in and of myself through the flesh. Can't do it. I will be a miserable replica. I will fall asleep every time. But through the Spirit, through the Spirit, I can. Through the Spirit, I don't have to serve the law of flesh. I don't have to serve the law of sin. I don't have to give in to that. Through the Spirit, I can rise and pray and follow the pattern of Jesus. 
Man, I wish I had more to go into on that one for you guys. But let me just tell you, Philippians 4.13 means what it says. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When Christ is your source of strength and is the foundation of the one who sits on the throne and the Spirit of God is in you and you are heeding His instruction and you are listening to Him and keeping step with the Spirit, as Galatians 5.25 says, there's no limit to what you can do other than what God prescribes in His Word. And that is nothing. Nothing will be impossible for him who believes. So Philippians 4.13 means what it says. You can do all things that God has commanded you in his word to do and to live the Christ-like image. And I'll even say it, to live unto perfection. Is it probable? Is the, is like the percentage high in your favor that you're going to live up to perfection? No, it's not. But is it possible? Yes. Because everything that God has commanded you to do in Christ is possible through him who believes. Alright, going on. 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Judas to, to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? I remember, you said we needed to buy a sword. We needed to use the sword. I get it. Oh, now it's all culminated to this point. I understand it, Jesus. And guess who the first one was to grab that sword? They said, look, Lord, here's two swords, right? Well, here's my question. Two swords for 12 disciples? Jesus says, it's enough? Really? I mean, how how are you going to fight back a mob of men with two swords and 12 disciples? So Peter had the misunderstanding of what Jesus was really speaking. And Peter goes up and he grabs this sword. Says, Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, it was Peter, just understand other gospel accounts say that it was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I mean, he took that sword that Jesus had just told him, hey, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And it's like, look, Lord, here's two swords. He's like, it's enough to fulfill the word. That was spoken of me that I was numbered of the transgressors. So Peter picks up this sword. And he goes and he defends Jesus. Of all people, Jesus would be the one that we would want to defend using physical violence. What does Jesus say about this? He says in verse 51. But Jesus says, no more of this. Now, now that's an interesting phrase because in the King James it says uh, something like "suffer ye thus." I, I don't remember what it is, but the Greek I can tell you what the Greek is "iao tutu heos" is the Greek phrase that's used there, and here's what it translates to: "You must allow this," or meaning, "do not restrain this from happening." Jesus says, Peter picks up the sword and he strikes the ear of the guy, Malchus is his name, the, uh, the servant of the high priest. He strikes uh, his ear and cuts off his ear. And he's like, yeah, I'm defending Jesus. I'm taking care of this guy. These guys are going to learn a lesson. You can't take Jesus. And Jesus says, stop, Peter. Have you not learned anything from me yet? All, as he talks about in Matthew 26, 52, all who want to live by the sword will die by the sword. He says, you want to take an earthly sense of justice. You want to have it physically in your mind that you're going to pick up that sword and you're going to defend yourself or even somebody else using physical violence. Please listen to me, what I'm saying right here. You're going to defend yourself or even somebody else with a physical form of violence for your own sense of what justice really is. He says, then you're going to be judged by that same thing. All who take the sword will die by the sword. Because here's the deal. As I detailed earlier, justice, where was the justice in a sinless man dying by the hand of his own father in order to spare transgressors. 
Man, I hope you're hearing me, and I hope that the Spirit has given you ears to hear and eyes to see with what He is saying to His church. And if you're not hearing, if you're not listening to this, and you're not getting it, and you're still wrapped up in what you've always thought, wrapped up what you've always believed, then I question if the Spirit is in you. At the very least, if you're listening to Him. It is irreconcilable and incongruent to say, And we have the right to defend ourselves or even other people using physical violence and still say that we're upholding the gospel. That is an impossibility. Jesus says, no more of this. You need to let these men do this. I mean, Jesus even goes as far as John is to saying that if if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting to preserve this world. They'd be fighting to preserve me because I'd be the king of this kingdom. But he says, but my kingdom isn't of this world. Therefore, my servants don't fight for this kingdom. And if if you're a physical soldier for a physical kingdom, you really need to think twice about that. Because Jesus says, there ain't any kingdom of this world that's mine. It all belongs to the God of this world. My kingdom is in heaven. And that's where you need to set your mind on. So if if you've enlisted in the military and you say you're a Christian, let me just tell you, you have one of two options. One, you better start representing Christ in the military in the way that he represented himself to us. There's a story of a guy named Desmond Doss that said he went into the, into the war because he wanted to do something. But he said, my job is to go and save lives. I'm not taking any lives. And so I will not bear a gun. He came under some heavy fire. And he ended up being allowed to stay in the military. But he would not take a gun. And he said, I will not take somebody's life. And so the Battle of Hacksaw, um, Hacksaw Ridge came about. And the Americans were retreating by, from the Japanese and there was a bunch of wounded soldiers that were there and nighttime came. Desmond Doss stayed up there when everybody else fled in their cowardism. They all fled. But he stayed up there under the cloak of darkness and he went and he grabbed person after person after person of wounded soldiers and he would bring them back to this ridge, lower them down like this 50-foot precipice And then he'd go back and get another one. He was accounted with about a hundred lives that he saved. And in between each one of them, he said, God, give me just one more. Never took a life, but he went to go save lives at at the peril of himself. So that's one option. The other option is to get out. Stop fighting for a kingdom that doesn't belong to Christ. I know that patriotism is a huge idol today. Trust me, I've come encounter with a lot of it. But the word of God is our standard for truth. And Jesus is our standard for the pattern that we're supposed to live by. So if you are a patriot and you are seeking to defend your country and you are, you are serving as a soldier out there taking lives, doing what you need to to make sure that the freedom of this country is preserved, let me just tell you, you are missing the boat. And I will say, you don't know a whole lot about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you do, then you're selfish. Because you're only receiving it for yourself, but unwilling to live it. Remember how I said truth is weighty? It'll step on your toes? Hopefully I just did. Because I don't want to be one who stands before God one day having to give an account. Because I sat silent. In times that I should have opened my mouth to speak truth. So Jesus says no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him. Let me just tell you guys, people cannot hear the gospel's message when we use the methods of man. They cannot hear the gospel's message when we're relegating ourselves to use our own methods of what we think is right, what we think needs to happen instead of what God says. The example that we have in Christ He goes on and says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Sometimes walking in the light means letting darkness have its hour. 
understand what I mean by that. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, walking in the light meant having to cast somebody out to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Sometimes darkness has to have its way in somebody's life before they're ever going to see the light. And you walking in that light means you're going to have to have some tough calls. Even in 1 Timothy, I think it's in, in chapter 1, maybe it's 2 Timothy chapter 1, but Paul talks about Hymenus and Alexander, about how they're upsetting the faith of some by saying the resurrection has already happened. He says that he delivered them over to Satan so that the rest of the people may learn, those who are giving into their teaching, those who are following their teaching, he says so that they may learn not to blaspheme. I sent two guys out there who are the ringleaders of this movement, of what was being propagated in the church, and I cast them out. So that the rest of the people would learn what happens to those who blaspheme. Paul was walking in the light. Paul was walking in truth. And that walking in the light allowed darkness to have its hour over Hymenaeus and Alexander. Or Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hermogenes, you could also go with that one. Those are other accounts in which he talks about the same exact thing. That their talk was spreading like gangrene point is, is that sometimes darkness has to have its hour before people will see the light. And you walking in the light sometimes allows that darkness to have its hour so that the light can have eternity. Going on in this one, he says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following it at a distance. Let me see what my time is. 46 minutes. Wow, okay. Um, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at it, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are, you are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. See, Peter stumbled. He denied him. Yes. And Jesus says, if you deny me, the father will deny you. But understand again, as I've tried to detail several times, the new covenant had not started yet. Therefore, any transgression committed under the first covenant, the old covenant, the one that God made with his people through the law of Moses, any transgression committed under that covenant is redeemable. Once the new covenant starts, not so much. And you might think, well, hold up a second. That, are you saying that there's things that, that cannot be redeemable? Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. The only unredeemable sin is apostasy. And I'd let you go look at Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6 for that one among many, many other passages that are there. You can go in James 1 and find it as well. James 4, you can see some correlations to that as well. But my point in all this of what I'm stating is, Peter denied Jesus under the Old Covenant right here. But this transgression was a stumbling. It wasn't a sought-out betrayal like it was with Judas. And even that, I think, could have been redeemed. But he didn't allow repentance to have its work in him. He didn't allow it to take root. He was so overwhelmed by his sorrow that he betrayed innocent blood. as a fulfillment of Scripture even in that. But he had betrayed innocent blood. And so therefore, as he went out... You see Acts and then the Gospels say that his insides began to explode and he hung himself. Pretty gruesome image. Well, the point is, this took place Old Covenant. We cannot lose sight of that. The second thing is, I want you to see, man, what would have gone through Peter's mind when he realizes that he just denied Jesus three times. And then, I think this is the only account that says it, but it says that Jesus turned and looked at him. Can you imagine that exchange? Imagine that exchange of Peter having just done what he did. And he sees the eyes of Jesus. And he has this realization, what have I done? Christian history even suggests that later on in Peter's life that he could never hear a rooster crow without shedding tears. 
I don't know if that's true or not. But Christian history would seem to suggest that it was. And I can tell you that there's been times where when I reminisce of ways that I've failed God, when I reminisce of that, tears well up. When I reminisce of the times where I have not been a good husband to my wife, tears well up. So I have no doubt that as much as Peter loved Jesus, that whenever he thought of that moment and was reminded of that moment when a rooster would crow, the tears would well up. Going on in 63, he says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Catch this picture of what's going on. These men who were holding him, if I remember correctly, in a previous account, I think it's in the, the Matthew account, this would be about 400 men. It was a squadron of Roman soldiers that were holding him, and they were beating him, they were mocking him, shoving the crown of thorns on his head, dressing him in a purple robe, and saying, Oh, hail, King of the Jews! They were beating him and mocking him. How many of you guys could take that without wanting to retaliate in your flesh? And yet Jesus is our pattern. Never lifted a finger to defend himself. I want to read something real quick. Because here's the thing. The Gospels are not our standard of the New Covenant um, life. Don't get me wrong when I say, are they important? Absolutely. But they're not the standard. Because Ephesians 2 says that Christ is the cornerstone built on the apostles and the prophets' teaching. And so we want to look at the Christian life Yes, we can go to the gospel accounts to find how Christ lived and things that what he taught. But there's some things that he was teaching that was clarifying old covenant doctrine. Not everything that goes on in the gospel accounts is establishing new covenant doctrine. We find that through the epistles, the apostles' teaching. And in Ephesians 2, it says that the church is built with Christ being the cornerstone. He set the way through the cross and the resurrection, built on the prophets and the apostles' teaching. And here's what he says in Romans, one of the epistles that Paul is writing to the church about how a Christian is supposed to live. In fact, the subtitle of it is Marks of a True Christian or of True Christianity. Here's what he says in verse 14 of chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Remember, who all who want to take the sword will die by the sword. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And here's what's interesting. That word in the Greek not only signifies avenging yourself, but it also entails and includes avenging others. Never take justice into your own hands. Never be wise in your own sight. Never seek to take the sword and cut off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. For Jesus says, you must permit this. Do not restrain it from happening. Do not resist the one who is evil. He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He says, you let God take care of that. First Peter 2, I would encourage you to go read that chapter. We have been called to walk in the same footsteps as Jesus, all the while entrusting our souls to him who judges justly. If God decides that he wants to redeem you out of that situation, then he will. If he doesn't, then he won't. Your job is to live like Christ in the midst of it. He says, on the contrary, your flesh might want to retaliate, but on the contrary, the spirit is going to say otherwise. Here's what he says. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not yours to. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, <clears throat> feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This, by the way, did you know, and this goes into the gospel message, that Ephesians 1 and 2, among other passages, say that we were living as enemies of God before we came to know Christ and were saved? I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God. I was hostile to the things of God. 
But God, being rich in mercy, made a way through Jesus Christ that while I was a sinner, He gave me something to eat. He offered me something to eat and something to drink. That while I was an enemy of the gospel, He offered me something to eat and drink in the form of His Son. He says, now I'm asking you to do the same. Somebody who's coming against you, somebody who's a sinner, somebody who's your enemy, offer them something to eat and drink. Don't take their life. He says, For by so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me just tell you, if you are one who is a proponent of self-defense, a proponent of taking another's life under certain parameters, then the gospel has not taken root in your heart yet. And like I said, even if you do understand it, you're living selfishly because you're one of the, the majority of people today who like to receive from God, but they don't like to give in the same way that they received. We like to receive grace, but we don't give it. We like to receive mercy, but we don't like to give it. We like to receive the forgiveness of God, and we worship Him for those, and we sing songs about how God has forgiven me. But when it comes to forgiving other people, we like to hold on to that. If you have received the gospel, then you need to live the gospel and uphold it. And that means that just as you are an enemy, a sinner, in the midst of your sinning, in the midst of your being an enemy, God extended food and drink to you in the form of His Son. And all He's asking us is to do the same. He goes on, In verse 64, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you, Jesus? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And yet, they're included in what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. One day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Notice what their initial question was. If you're the Christ, if you're the anointed one, if you're the one who is prophesied to come, if you are the Christ, the Christos in the Greek, the anointed one, tell us. But he said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they changed their tune on what they asked Him. Because He just said that the the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. A distinction that no human being had ever claimed. And so they asked Him now, no longer are you the Christos, are you the Anointed One? He says, Are you the Son of God then? Are are you the Son of God? Are you of the bloodline of heaven? Are you making yourself unified with God to say that you share His blood? And Jesus says, You have said so. You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? What We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. That he is now declaring that he is the bloodline of heaven as the Son of God. Because the Jews knew that the prince is at the right hand. The one who shares the bloodline of heaven is at the right hand. No human being had ever been able to claim that distinction in and of himself. No one has ever been at the bloodline of God. Until Jesus. Now listen, I want you to, to understand something real quick about what he says in Ephesians 1, 15-21 and Ephesians 2, 4-7. Starting in 15, he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to what He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Man, don't miss that part. The immeasurable, it can't even be quantified, the immeasurable amount of power that He has given to us through Christ towards those who believe. 
and you think you don't have what you need to live a life of godliness? He says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He says, through Christ, I have given you the same power that raised him from the dead. I've given that same access to that power toward those who believe. I asked a question in our men's study the other day. Do you think that it requires more power from heaven? Which is more of the impossibility? For you to overcome a specific sin in your life? To, to take your thoughts captive, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, that we have the authority through Christ to do, and to even bring them to submission? To live a life that's honoring to God in the reflection of Jesus Christ? To, to walk as Jesus walked, even though 1 John 2.6 says that that's our commission? Which do you think requires more power from heaven? The, which is the greater impossibility? To live a life like Christ? Or to be raised from the dead? Every one of them answered. To be raised from the dead. That's the greater impossibility. That's the, that's the harder thing to do. Between the two. And I said, and yet the same power that caused Jesus to rise from the grave, to conquer death, lives in us. So next time that you want to try to think that you can't live the Christ-like life, think about which is harder. You living that Christ-like life or being resurrected from the dead. But he says this, that he seated Christ at the right hand of the Father. Above all rule and all authority and all this stuff. And then in chapter 2, in 4 through 7, listen very carefully. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us. Which by the way he was talking about before that we were actually sons of the God of this world. We were enemies of his. We were sinners. We were transgressors. We were doing all those things that were contrary to God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Present tense, not future tense. It's not something in which he says, hey, you know what? One day you will be raised up with him at the right hand of the Father. He says you are. That when you came into Christ, there was this transaction that occurred in which God seated with you. You seated you and I with him in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. Did, did you catch that? Because where Jesus is, that's where we also are spiritually. That while here on this earth in our physical bodies, spiritually, we are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. That's what he goes on to say. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It says, where Christ is, that's where you are. And that's the premise of what he talks about in John 14 when he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may also be. He said, look, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. And guess where you've been seated in me? At the right hand of the Father. So what is under my feet is under your feet. This is an untold mystery of the gospel. That as Christ received from the Father everything that he needed to live out a righteous and blameless life, so we also have the same access. Whether or not we grab hold of that and reckon it to our lives, that's up to you. And that's up to me. If we fail in that, it's not because God didn't give us what we needed. It's because we failed to take hold of what we needed. It has all been given to us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. This is who we are. And while we aren't the bloodline of heaven, we're covered by the bloodline of heaven in Christ. And that is a beautiful distinction that we need to make sure that we grab hold of and stop listening to this 
defeated gospel that's being promoted today that I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's all. That's who you and I were. We were sinners who were dead set against God and we were extended grace so that we could come into this salvation. But it didn't end there. Praise God. You don't have to remain a sinner saved by grace. You can go through Christ to be more than a conqueror. You can go out there and take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. You can go out there and do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You can go out there and live the Christ-like life because of the grace that has been afforded to you, which is not mercy. It is not just overlooking your sin. That's not what grace is. Grace is the authority of heaven to overcome sin. And when you begin to understand and reconcile a right meaning and definition of grace to your belief in the truth of God's word, that's where power comes in. Because all things are possible for him who believes. God's immeasurable greatness toward us in the saints who believe. So if your faith is already lacking in believing that all things are possible, then you won't ever achieve it. But through this, they decided to put him on the cross because he made himself unified with God in the same bloodline of heaven. And so they put him on a cross. Hopefully this sermon or this podcast was edifying, challenging, convicting, but informing for you. And you begin letting this be a springboard to greater truths that God wants to unveil in your life. Y'all be blessed.